Stacy and I have spent the last four weeks exploring with you the prodigal son parable in Luke. That parable kind of occupies the middle place in that gospel. Likewise, in John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus sort of occupies that center place. These verses are immediately following the account of the raising of Lazarus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a great dinner for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. At our session meeting last Monday night, this was the text we used for our Bible study together. I asked the elders what impressions they had of the text, and really great insights came to the fore. It was only as we were leaving after the meeting that one elder sidled up to me and almost in a whisper said, that text was a downer. As we draw ever closer to Holy Week, there is a feeling of gathering darkness in this text. It also leaves us nearly dizzy for all the things that are packed into just eight short verses. Verse 1, six days before the Passover. In other words, six days before he was going to die, Jesus came to Bethany. There's a country song that goes, all I want to know is where I'm going to die, so I'll never go there. Jesus had been warned not to go to Jerusalem, and Bethany was on the very outskirts of Jerusalem. Going to Bethany was like signing his death warrant to the home of Lazarus, to whom Jesus had raised from the dead. In a world of toppers, this takes the cake. We're used to flowery introductions of politicians and queens, of business executives and Nobel laureates. No one gets an introduction like this. Let me introduce you to Lazarus, who is dead and is now alive. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard. A pound? A pound. In my family, there is a person, and since these sermons get posted online, she will go anonymous who we have said in our family, you can smell her long before you see her or hear her. The overwhelming essence of her perfume in her house, her car, on her pets, lingering in her clothing is enough to coat one's lungs immediately. After she visits, you can only hope that by throwing open all the windows, running all the exhaust fans 24-7, sooner or later the odor gets mitigated. But she, in all her days of perfume clouds, never, ever used a pound of perfume. Also in verse 3, Mary anointed Jesus' feet. 
We'll return to that in a minute. In verse 4, we meet <clears throat> excuse me, Judas, and we are quickly told that he was the one who was going to betray Jesus, as if you had any wondering about that. Verse 5 has Judas asking why the pound of perfume worth nearly a whole year's annual salary was not sold and given to the poor. Verse 6 has you tearing up the humanitarian of the year award for Judas when you find out he was a thief and not he didn't really care about the poor. In verse 7, we finally hear from Jesus. And his first words are in defense of Mary. And then in verse 8, we'll come back to verse 8 in a minute as well. There is enough in every single verse here to occupy us between now and Easter. That's what all momentous events are like. It's all at once. This often happens especially when there's conversation about death. Which is first, the grief, the feeling of finality, or decisions to be made? It all comes to us at once. It's too much to take in. But wait a minute, how do we, how do they know that death is hovering over this whole scene? The text says that it's six days before Passover, but we know what happens in six days. Holy Week schedule is printed in your bulletin. They wouldn't have known what was just ahead. How do they know that Jesus is on the way to his death? Because Mary washed Jesus' feet. During dinner preparations, Mary isn't around to help. She's somewhere else getting something. There's precedent for this in the Gospels. Mary, it seems, is always disappearing, even when she's sitting right there with everyone else. Barbara Brown Taylor has said, Mary gets this look on her face like she's listening to music no one else can hear. No one notices then when Mary is gone again until she comes back with a clay jar. She kneels at Jesus' feet and breaks the neck of the jar. The smell halfway between mint and ginseng fills the room. As everyone in the room watches Mary, she does four remarkable things in a row. First, she loosens her hair full of, in a room full of men. That is not something an honorable woman did in the first century. Second, she pours perfume on Jesus' feet, which is also not done. You could pour it on the head. If you poured it on Jesus' head, then he's a king. That's what they did for kings, never the feet. Third, she touches him. A single woman rubbing a single man's feet. Not a chance in the first century. Finally, she wipes the perfume off with her hair. Totally inexplicable. A bizarre end to an all-around bizarre act. This already packed and confusing passage is made more so by what I call Bible overlap. We think we've heard this text before. Uh, we confuse this account with three others in the Bible, one each in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In the first two, an unnamed woman anoints Jesus' head at the house of Simon the leper during the last week of Jesus' life. In the third story, the scene happens at Simon the Pharisee's house, much earlier in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is eating supper when a notorious sinner slips into the room and stands weeping over Jesus' feet, then drops to the ground and covers his feet with her kisses and then dries them with her hair. Only in John's story does this woman get a name, Mary, and a relationship with Jesus, not a stranger, but a long-time friend 
which makes her act all the more peculiar. He knows she loves him. He loves her too. So why this dramatic demonstration in front of all of their friends? It's extravagant. It's excessive, as Judas is quick to point out. This isn't, however, just some act of devotion or affection. Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Alone at that dinner, perhaps alone in the whole of the Gospels, Mary honors Jesus' path to the cross. She doesn't fight it. She doesn't resist it. She doesn't tell him he can't do it. She plays a role in preparing Jesus for the week ahead. When Mary stood before Jesus with that pound of pure nard in her hand, it could have gone either way. She could have anointed his head. They all in that room would have loved if she anointed his head. Jesus is king. Let's take up the cause. Let's overthrow the Romans. Let's go into the political power that is ours for the taking. But she didn't do that. She poured the perfume on his feet, which only meant one thing. In that time and in that culture, the only man to get his feet anointed was a dead man. And Jesus knew it. And so did Mary. And so did everybody else in that room. And while we're thinking of extravagance, we have the last verse. Verse 8. That verse, one of the most mangled, misunderstood, and misused in a Bible that often has verses that are mangled, misused, and misunderstood. Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Can we, in this congregation gathered this morning, declare by acclamation that this verse in no way says that we can ignore the poor? And this isn't just talking about the poor in spirit. This is talking about the poor. One in five people in our state live in poverty today. This morning, one in four children in Austin woke up to a life of poverty. One in four. 7,000 of our fellow Austin neighbors experienced homelessness last year. 7,000. Right here, right now, can we please agree all together that this verse says many things, but ignoring the poor, bypassing the poor, blaming the poor is not an option for those who seek to follow the Scripture and follow Jesus here. When Ted Kennedy died a few years ago, many people offered wonderful accounts of how he had interacted with them and touched their life. One of these was Christine Combs of Abington, Massachusetts, whose husband Jeff was killed in the World Trade Center on 9-11. When Ted Kennedy learned that she had set up a charitable foundation in honor of her husband and in service of children in need in Massachusetts... Ted Kennedy began sending her watercolors that he painted and signing them so she could auction them off to help the foundation. As the anniversary of September 11th approached every year, Ted Kennedy made sure to send a letter to the families. To Combs, he wrote on September 11th, 2005, Dear Christine, I want you to know that we are thinking of you and your entire family during this difficult time of year. 
As you so well know, the passage of time never really heals the tragic memory of such a great loss. But we carry on because we have to, because our loved one would want us to, and because there is still light to guide us in the world from the love that they gave us. Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. What if far from an exemption from caring for the poor, Jesus is saying that the poor are how we will still be able to be with Jesus after Jesus is gone. We serve, we give, we we come alongside, we work with those in need because we have to, because our loved one would want us to. And because there is still light to guide us in the world from the love that they gave us while they were here. While Jesus is gone, the poor are not. We still have them to love and to serve. And in so doing, we love and serve Jesus. Jesus was referencing Deuteronomy 15, 11, Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. This last verse in our text is an invitation. It's an opportunity. It's not an exemption from what we do for those in greatest need and how we are to be with them on our shared journey. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Jesus said to those who were trying to prevent Mary from this outrageous, extravagant act of anointing Jesus' feet in preparation for his burial. So Mary anointed Jesus' feet with a perfume so precious that its sale would have helped many, many poor families for a year, an act so lavish that it suggests even another layer in this. There will be nothing economical in Jesus' death. Just as there is nothing economical about Jesus' life, this is the bottom line for the life of a follower of Jesus. In Jesus, the extravagance of God's love is made flesh. In Jesus, the excessiveness of God's mercy is right there for us to see and touch. And in Mary, we see a follower who could be us. One who risks everything, stops at nothing, is excessive in in devotion and love, is wildly extravagant in reaching out and to serve, and is without limits when it comes to trusting God's love and spreading God's hope. No one is left out. Everyone is included. I keep thinking about that pound of perfume. It won't be saved. It won't be preserved for another time. It'll be open, offered, used at a great price. It'll be raised up and poured out for the life of the world. It'll be emptied to the last drop. Before that happens, Jesus will gather with his friends one more time, another banquet around a similar table with most of the same people present. Jesus will strip down and tie a towel around his waist, and he will wash the disciples' feet. And then he will give them a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. 
And then in that hard, challenging week that they had before them, whatever they need on the road to Jesus' crucifixion, there will be enough to go around. Whatever they spend in being devoted in that week, there will be plenty left over. The writer of The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, was a pilot in World War II, stationed in North Africa. In his time there, he became friendly with several of the Bedouin tribe members, those rough and hardy desert, desert dwellers who had survived for years on so little. On one occasion, saint Exupéry was able to fly some of the Bedouin back to Paris when he went back there for a visit. He expected the members of the tribe to be wowed by all the modern world that France had on display. The Eiffel Tower, automobiles, a massive train system. But the Bedouins looked upon all these with a studied indifference. Only one thing provoked awe and wonder from these visitors. A massive waterfall they flew over as they were going across the French Alps. And what particularly amazed them was that the waterfall never stopped. It just kept going and going and going and going. They had measured their lives in the desert by water. How much water was left in a canteen? How many miles until the oasis? How far can the camels go? Every day, month upon month, year upon year, measurement by water. And here before them was this gushing, endless cascade of God's abundance. Of this, saint Exupéry wrote, they stood in silence, mute, solemn, as they beheld the unfolding of a ceremonial mystery. That which came roaring from the belly of the mountain was life itself. The flow of a single second of this waterfall would have resuscitated whole caravans dying of thirst. Here God was manifesting God's self. It would, not, it would not do to turn one's back on this wonder of wonders. I cannot help but think of that when we touch the waters of baptism or when we encounter thirst. Thirst in our up and down lives, the actual bodily thirst of the parched, those parts for resources to live, or for all of us whose souls are wilting. In God's economy, there is no reason to fear running out, even in the face of death, even in the face of sacrifice. There's no fear of running out of perfume, of baptismal water, of ways to help those who lack what they need or those who thirst for life itself, even in the face of death. For where God is concerned, there is always more than we can ask or imagine. Gifts of grace and hope for us, for everyone we know, for every single person in need. The gifts of God for the people of God. It looks a lot like a waterfall. Or this week, smells a lot like perfume.